Welcome back to the program. The world has indeed changed. We can know intimately and immediately what's taken place in the far reaches of the world or across America. But we often don't know what's going on in our neighborhoods and in our communities. Today, we're part of many communities of interest, not communities of geography. And is it a surprise, really? The natural human tendency is to associate with people like us. But as mobility and tolerance have brought together diversity of communities, it has also atomized us in ways that we seek the similar no matter where on the planet it might be. But what's the consequence of this? We were once a great and vast continental nation that had to rely on community as a form of safety and self-government. Today, that's not the case. The result has impacted our relationships, our politics, and the very way we govern ourselves. Where it's going and how we got here is the subject of a brilliant new book by my guest, Mark Dunkelman. Mark Dunkelman is a research fellow at Brown University and a senior fellow at the Clinton Foundation. His writing has appeared in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and National Affairs. And it is my pleasure to welcome Mark Dunkelman here to talk about The Vanishing Neighbor, The Transformation of American Community. Mark Dunkelman, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Jeff, for having me. It's great to have you here. It's very easy to look at these trends and much of what you write about in terms of these changes taking place and chalk it up to technology as being a major factor. But clearly there are other factors that have been at play as this has evolved. Talk a little about that. Yeah, you're absolutely right that the tendency is to look at social media as the driving factor, but there are a whole variety of changes that have happened over the course of the last several decades. One big one that we don't often talk about much anymore is suburbanization, but that shift uh, has had really profound consequences. But even beyond that, that we are now, our attitudes on issues from gay marriage to racial relations to uh, how we how we manage uh, time in our families, the fact that women are in uh, the professional workforce uh, in much greater numbers, the whole variety of shifts that encompass the last several decades have combined to have what I think is sort of one profound shift. I call it the Chinatown bus effect uh, in the book, and we can go into why I do that, but the crucial issue is today, like at no previous point in American history, we're able to get from what we want to, from what we want to exactly what, what, what that is, with much less craziness in the middle. We can get exactly to the people that we want to talk to. We can be in exactly the relationships that we want. We can buy the clothes exactly, uh, the, the exact clothes that we want. From, from issue to issue to issue, the things that compelled us to talk to people who are different, who had different points of view, have gone by the wayside. How much of this is as a result of external marketing forces that have been at play for the past 30, 40, 50 years, and the way some have argued that we've become more a nation of consumers than a nation of citizens, and there does seem to be an element of that that has at least contributed to this change. Yeah, I think that, that you should, we, we can divide the issues into essentially two buckets. The first is simply opportunity, right? Today, we have much more opportunity to get exactly what we want much more easily. And so the fact that you no longer have to go to the central shopping district to find clothing, you can just buy it on Amazon or go to a, a shopping mall that, that 
caters exclusively to your demographic, that's made things a lot easier. But you're absolutely right that the second bucket is motivation. And there is data today that shows that narcissism is way up in American life, that, there's a, that there is a, uh, a real desire to have your views that you, you yourself hold reflected back at you in the, con, in the social context that you have. So rather than talking to somebody who has a different opinion or roots for a different football team or comes from a different experience, we're much more desirous of having our ideas parroted back to us uh, in our everyday lives. And the overlay to this, which you write about, is that essentially we evolved a form of self-government in this country that really relied on this previous kind of social architecture. And as the social architecture has changed, it, it has, one, not served us well in terms of government, as we see by the gridlock in, in Washington. But more importantly, it was really kind of a perfect storm of things that came together that made it work in the first place, and it has fundamentally changed, and arguably we're not going to get back to that way of doing things. Yeah, I, I want to be careful. I don't want to predict exactly what's going to happen, but you're absolutely right that the magic of the American experiment has grown from the fact that the institutions of American life corresponded perfectly with this social architecture that lasted through so much of American history. So that's, those are sort of two big ideas. The, the, the second, which is sort of the most important to understand, is that American social architecture was different from what existed in Europe. We had a bottom-up way of organizing ourselves, meaning that sort of like in Little House on the Prairie, everybody knew one another in most of their residential neighborhoods, so that you had lawyers and plumbers and doctors and uh, and uh, teachers all talking with one another. They couldn't avoid each other in their everyday lives in ways that they tended to in Europe. And that core social architecture, which I term a township in my book, lasts from colonial villages to frontier towns to urban tenement neighborhoods to first-ring suburbs, and then over the course of the last several decades, it begins to fall apart and becomes... Uh, sort of subsumed by what I call networked architecture, and we can talk about that as well. What a- but the crucial, the crucial thing to understand is that the Constitution and our way of governing was built on that social architecture. There was a marriage between the two of them. And suddenly, because the social architecture has changed, the way we governed ourselves doesn't seem to work nearly as well. What do we learn when we look at essentially company towns, and by that I don't just mean small towns, small mill towns, traditional America, but places like Detroit in its heyday or Silicon Valley today, when we look at large places that were joined together by a commonality of a particular industry, do we learn anything by looking at those? Yeah, we learn a lot. The crucial piece to appreciate is that in most of our history, big ideas and a general sense of common understanding came from the fact that people who didn't have the same point of view, didn't have the same expertise, didn't have the same background, couldn't avoid each other in their everyday lives. That was true in Detroit. Detroit became the motor city because in Detroit at the turn of the 20th century, 
There was a big uh, carriage manufacturing industry. There was a big shipbuilding industry for boats on the Great Lakes. And there was an engine design industry there. And those three groups came together just in happenstance, right? They were on the docks or they were on the street or they were in the bar or they were at a restaurant and they were trading ideas all the time. But they were from different points of view. That, that's why the magic of the automobile industry centered in Detroit. Now we have a different view of how innovation happens, and it's the, what I call the Silicon Valley model, which is different in the sense that now we've got a sliver of land there in California where people who generally have the same ideas or the same background or the same expertise are interacting. These are both productive models, right? These are both ways to generate new ideas and have different things clash, but the diversity in the Detroit model is much greater. And the fear I have is that the fact that we are relying on segregating people into common interest and having them talk only to people who have a similar point of view, we're going to lose the magic of that diversity. The interesting thing that's happening with respect to Silicon Valley is is kind of a reverse trend that speaks to even the inherent problems in the kind of new urbanism that we see in that traditionally people have lived in suburbs, commuted into cities. What we're seeing in Silicon Valley is a tremendous number of young people that are working essentially in suburban Silicon Valley that are living in and commuting back to cities in the evening. But even that is not creating the kind of diversity that you're talking about. Yeah. I think that even even the issue of where they live and where they work is... Well, that's that's really interesting, and it's changing dramatically in New York, in Connecticut, and uh, in Westchester County. There are interesting trends about where businesses are locating themselves and where people are trying to live. Of more concern to me is the fact that when you get home at night, rather than going to a PTA meeting or a bowling league or a bridge, a, a bridge group across the street, you drive your car into your garage, close the door, come in, spend a lot of quality time with your family, then turn on your computer and go on Facebook or Twitter and never have the interactions that our grandparents almost inevitably had with the people that lived nearby them or that were joined in, in social groups like bowling leagues uh, that have really that no longer exist as they used to. Yet if you look at urban areas, particularly where young people congregate, and I'm sure you see it in in Providence, but certainly it's true in New York, in Washington, D.C., in San Francisco, you see large groups of young people congregating virtually every single night, every single evening, in bars and restaurants and and what have you. That is true in many cases. Uh, in, in, uh, In some cases, that ends immediately when they have children or move out to the suburbs. So it's a, a short period of, of time. In general, if you look at the data and ask people, who have you spent time with over the course of the last month, the data shows that people are spending much more time with their family, much more time with friends who live se- several miles from them, so a, a close friend that they or, or, or someone have some affinity with, they made a plan to meet, but much less time with their neighbors. And that's a profound shift that is really unprecedented in the history of American community. It's certainly important to understand 
how we got to this point and all of the things that we're talking about, when we look forward, should we be thinking about the recreation of this previous model and the ways in which that was a positive force in terms of democracy and self-government and all the other areas we've touched on? Or do we need to be thinking about a new political and democratic architecture that takes advantage of the fundamental shifts that we're seeing? The answer to that question is both. Um, and I, I want to I say first that the reason I wrote the book was that there is a frustration across America that the institutions of our lives are failing, that politics is failing, that the economy is not growing like it should. But it extends to public schools, which people have less faith in, and even to uh, institutions of faith. And there seems to be very little understanding of why that's happening. So I wrote the book in order to explain that to people, to provide them with some context so that they can see that this shift in our Nation's social architecture is at the root of our of our flagging faith in this whole range of issues. As we move forward, understanding why things aren't going as we want, understanding the reason that that's happening, gives us empowers us in two ways. First, it allows us to begin to think: Well, if if our new social architecture doesn't work with those old institutions, how should we reform the institutions? How can government be reformed to work more effectively with this new social architecture? How can we find better ways to harness American ingenuity and entrepreneurialism? We can begin to think through how, how to pair those better. But there's also an impulse, and I share it with almost, uh, with almost everyone, to return some element of uh, our time and attention to the relationships that seem to have been abandoned. And I've got a couple of ideas about ways to do that, but I think there's some chance that my children and their children will desire, as their life goes on, to rebuild those relationships, that they will find it lonely to live in a, in a neighborhood of strangers and will want to reconnect. So I have some faith that some of this will be fixed organically. But for those younger people, your children, it, it, it's not necessarily a situation of rebuilding because it implies building something that they were familiar with or that they knew. And for younger people today, I, I don't think that they have any sense of this fundamental foundation we've been talking about. I think that's true in some cases and not in others. You're absolutely right that my experience growing up in the 80s was very different from my father's experience growing up in the 50s. So that when I went home, uh, I, I grew up in Buffalo and my father grew up in Cincinnati. When I grew up, when I used to visit my father's home and we would drive up the street where he grew up, he could name all of his neighbors and what the kids' names were and where the parents went to work and where the kids went to college, all this stuff. And it was very apparent to me that that was not my experience. In Buffalo, most of my neighbors were strangers. I have decided... Uh, my, my wife and I decided a year ago that we, wa we wanted to find a place where that sort of connection that my father had existed. And so we moved to a neighborhood here in Providence, Rhode Island, where, where, where that does exist. I do know my neighbors here. So you're absolutely right that it may not be the experience of children today that they know their neighbors as their grandparents did. But that doesn't mean that they won't note 
that they <laughs> see people on the street or that they're going to restaurants or whatnot, that, and that they, they won't desire to know more about them. I think that is, that is part of the American experience that may, they may not have experienced themselves as children, but they may reconnect to later in life. In many ways, it has to do with one of the fundamental building blocks of community, it seems, which are schools. And when we talk about self-government and community democracy, it often starts with PTAs and school boards and and moves up from there. One of the things that we're seeing, and, and you talk about this in education reform today, is a greater emphasis on collaboration. We see it in the context of Common Core and in so many other areas where where project-based learning, collaborative effort, and even collaboration in the workplace are key elements. How does that interact with what we're talking about? The core competency that you need to build the sort of relationship that used to exist between people who had different points of view is an element of what many educators now call grit, which is the ability to withstand the impulse to lash out at someone who disagrees with you or turn away from them. It is a, the, the, it is a, a fundamental issue of self-control. It turns out that this issue of grit, or some people call it character, some people call them non-cognitive skills, the research is showing that this is the, the most important ingredient for, for a, a fulfilling and successful life, that people who have, that, that eighth graders who have more grit than, uh, than their and their colleagues in, uh, in the eighth grade are, are, are much more likely to, to have high GPAs, that it's, in fact, even more consequential than IQ. And there's some question in my mind, and I think it's, I don't want to say anything definitive because I don't think we know, but it would be interesting to investigate more whether the emphasis on collaborative learning that you're talking about is imbuing kids and students with the element of grit that used to come from the kind of rote learning that is so discouraged today. You know, I had an experience in the in the ninth grade where my biology teacher told me to go home and memorize the Krebs cycle, which is an arcane, well, right. it, it isn't for biologists. But I thought, I mean, my, my, my friends and I were all aghast because it was so boring to go home and memorize these, these chemical interactions so that we could write them down on a blank sheet of paper. But the truth is that that exercise forced me to go home, shut down all my devices, sit in my room, and just focus for several hours, just writing this thing down over and over and over. That took grit. Whether I wanted to do it or not, it took grit. And it made it possible for me, in another context, to withstand the impulse to turn away, to lash out. And this is an issue in education that seems almost never to be at the forefront of our debate. We talk about tenure, and we talk about uh, uh, STEM, and we talk about a whole variety of issues. But this issue of how we get to weave grit and self-control into the curriculum of our schools could be the crucial element that helps us to rebuild these relationships that seem to have gone by the wayside. What's the corollary with what you're talking about and something like the marshmallow, the classic marshmallow experiment, which, which often lies at the core of this discussion about grit? Well, that's, that's exactly the issue. If you are able to, the, 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 your listeners 
likely know, but the, there's a there's a famous old experiment where if you gave a four-year-old and you put a marshmallow in front of him or her and asked him or her to withhold from eating the marshmallow until some specified time in the future, and they were able to withstand the, the impulse to eat the marshmallow in order to get a second marshmallow, those kids are much more successful years later. They have better GPAs, they're less likely to be in the criminal justice system, they're much, they live healthier lifestyles, they're more apt to be married and, and with kids, the, the whole across the realm. It's exactly that competency that is at the core of building the old kinds of social architecture that pervaded American society. It was the ability to withstand the impulse to, to eat the marshmallow that made it possible for a conservative, independent business person and a, a liberal ac ac academic who didn't agree on who should control Congress or who should be president to come to some sort of fundamental understanding so that they knew when their member of Congress compromised with someone from the, across the aisle that it wasn't crazy to do that, that there was something reasonable about that. And so the, the, the challenge for us is to find ways proactively to provide future generations with that same element of self-control. One of the other fundamental challenges, it seems, is the speed, the rapidity of change today. I mean, we could have had this conversation 10 years ago and arguably seen some of these trends happening, the disappearance of distance, the disappearance and less the lack of importance of geography in some respects, but not anticipated what's happened with respect to social networking. In trying to look five, ten years down the road, change is happening in, in so many of these areas so rapidly, it's hard to get a handle on so much of this. You're absolutely right that we don't know what will happen, and that's actually one of the reasons I'm optimistic, is that there's some element of our, our our universal desire to know people who have different points of view, that there's, that there's something wonderful about that, and it may be that future generations return to it. Um, uh, you're absolutely right also that there's been incredibly rapid change. What doesn't deviate in, is that the bulk of these changes all point towards what I call the Chinatown bus effect, which is that there, nearly every change makes it easier for us to get what we want with less hassle. And it was in that hassle that used to exist that we were forced to build these relationships with people who had different points of view. It was, a, it was what Jane Jacobs called a virtuous inefficiency. It took more time to get between places, but we were having interactions with people who had different different points of view, and it was in those interactions where we gleaned a, a, a better appreciation for the other, other political point of view or a different idea that we could apply to our own business or a new way to take care of people who were infirm. All of these things happened in these inefficiencies in, the, in American life. And as, they, as, we, as we become more efficient, which is in most cases a blessing, we've lost this extra element uh, that helped guide us. To the extent that more and more Americans are moving to cities, that we're seeing a, an increase in urbanism in this country, what impact is that having? What impact do you anticipate that it might have? I don't think we know. I think there's a lot, there's a, there's a lot to be hopeful about because in cities, people tend not to be as ensconced in their cars uh, 
and are therefore more likely to see each other on on BART or on uh, on the on the bus or what it, or whatever it is. There's 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 a hope that people will get out of their apartments and spend more time actually talking to people who have different points of view. The the reverse element, of course, is that people who congregate in these neighborhoods maybe enjoying the amenities of being in a bustling big city, but they're spending all their time listening to podcasts of uh, of radio shows where the host generally agrees with their point of view, or they are uh, they are uh, sitting at home uh, still on their on uh, doing social networking rather than joining their local bowling league. And as Bill Bishop found in the Big Sort, in many cases the neighborhoods that exist today are more sorted ideologically than they were a couple of generations ago. So even if they are involved in the local PTA, it's more likely that the people who live near them share their points of view. That being said, we just don't know what's going to happen. Uh, and it is, and it is the, that, that's the, 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 the $100,000 question. Will the shift, and you're absolutely right, the, the, the great inversion from suburban life to urban life, which exists in some parts of the country, we should note, of course, that there are people who think that the inversion is not is not is not as dramatic as as some others believe. Uh, but the question is whether urban life will help us to reconstitute these sorts of middle ring relationships, and I just don't think we know. One of the things you talk about early on in the book, and that we touched on early on here, was the, the uniqueness of the American experience from from the bottom up. As we look around the world today, as we look at other Western nations in particular, and the world in general, what do we see in terms of some of these ideas that are in some ways guideposts for what's taking place here? Well, um, it's, a, it's an excellent question. The, 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 the issue that I wanted to get out in the book was this, this very fortunate alchemy that happened in American life where we had a political system uh, and, a, and a, really a, a system for innovation that was built from these townships uh, that existed in American life in ways that they did not in Europe. That in Europe it was a top-down system where you had a central government that dictated the terms to local, uh, uh, local representatives who then dictated to, to people on the ground. In the United States, it, it worked the other way. There's some... There's, there's, there's some... Uh, there's some evidence to suggest that things are not quite as distinct uh, anymore, that, that Europe is, is uh, or, or at least that America is, is becoming sorted more thoroughly by education, by class. Um, uh, and so it's not entirely clear what will happen. Uh, but the, the crucial point I hope that readers come away with is, is recognizing the fact that the magic of the American experience was this marriage of a social architecture that we had and a governing structure uh, that was imposed on it, and that when either of those two things changes, the other one needs to adjust. Mark Dunkelman, the book is The Vanishing Neighbor, The Transformation of American Community. Mark, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks for having me on. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 